0: It's sometimes hard to know what the right thing to do is. Is is this drug trolley okay? When I have to have it secured to a wall, what does that mean? And for drug cupboards specifically, and controlled drug cupboards, which are even stronger and more scary, um, having a British standard like this gives gives me an absolute So I don't need to ask any questions, I don't need to know what good looks like, I don't need to work out what good looks like, or ask my mates at the hospital down the road what they're doing. The British standard gives me an absolute black and white, this is right, this is wrong, If your cupboard is compliant, it's great. Don't worry any further. If your cupboard is not compliant, it's not good enough. Please buy something else. So for me, and and pharmacists love a bit of black and white. We love things to be crystal clear. So for me, it just gives that absolute certainty that in this particular sphere, medicines cupboards, I'm doing the right thing. I can be assured we're compliant. If our regulators come in, I can tell them we're compliant. So it just gives me that level of certainty, which you don't often see in the NHS.
1: We present The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is a my favourite standard, BS 2881, Medicine Cupboards.
2: Hello. This is Matthew Charles, and welcome to The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards. Now, one of our favourite features here on The Standard Show is my favourite standard. It's where we ask people, either those working in standards, working on standards, or working with standards, to tell us just that. Over a few short minutes, their story about why one particular standard means so much to them, either professionally or personally, or usually, a little bit of both. In fact, it's such a favourite that in episode 95, we brought together a few of these short stories and created a little montage or medley of them. Check out the episode in the feed. Now, the genesis of this episode started out as one of those, a short story about one particular, my favourite standard. That was until I got talking to the storyteller, Julia Scott, the voice you heard at the top of the episode, and I felt that a short story just wasn't enough. Julia is Associate Director of Clinical Quality Assurance and Innovation at the Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust in the southeast of England. And you heard her describing, with some passion there, why the British standard BS 2881, specification for cupboards for the storage of medicines in healthcare premises, is just so important to her and to hospital pharmacy generally. Now, obviously, her love for BS 2881 and the role it played in her professional life is great enough, but her role at the Trust is a really fascinating one. And so it's because of this fascinating role, her standards journey with BS 2881 and other standards, and her experiences of being a standards user in healthcare, that we thought we should devote a whole episode to Julia and her story.
1: This is Cindy Paracle here, with a quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter, at Standard Show, and on Instagram, at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch.
2: So, Julia Scott is Associate Director of Clinical Quality Assurance and Innovation at the Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust. In our conversation, we'll hear her describe more about the trust and her unique role in it. She also talks about how standards work alongside and with regulations and professional guidance to provide that all-important medicine governance and management. But the conversation goes elsewhere too. Julie describes the dramatic impact of Covid on everyone at the hospital and the unbridled joy they experienced on receiving the first batch of vaccines. She also talks about layers of Swiss cheese, blowtorches and sledgehammers. Don't worry, it all makes sense. But the conversation is mainly about the relationship she has had and continues to have with the British standard BS-2881, Specification for Cupboards for the Storage of Medicines in Healthcare Premises. So, of course, we started with that. So, Julia, the standard BS-2881. Now, this is the Specification for Cupboards for the Storage of Medicines in Healthcare Premises. So, tell me, why is BS-2881 so important to you?
0: I should probably start by saying it's probably the only British standard that I can name by number that I can reference that trips off the tongue. Uh, And I like to think an awful lot of other hospital pharmacists can probably run that number off very easily as well. So the reason it's important in in hospital pharmacy specifically, and that's my professional background, that's the sector I've always worked in a pharmacy, Um, A key part of what um, senior pharmacists might do in hospital is called medicines management. That's some of the governance we do around medicine security and safety. Uh, And one of our responsibilities is to make sure medicines are stored safely so that they can't be stolen or used incorrectly. Um, They're a valuable asset. They cost a lot of money. So we've got to look after them. And so medicines management, which is not a term we we use so much anymore, but part of that is around locking drugs away in cupboards and in trolleys and, and keeping them safe. Um, and it's it's sometimes hard to know what the right thing to do is. Is is this drug trolley okay when I have to have it secured to a wall? What does that mean? And for drug cupboards specifically, and controlled drug cupboards, which are even stronger and more scary, um, having a British standard like this gives me gives me an absolute. So I don't need to ask any questions. I don't need to know what good looks like. I don't need to work out what good looks like. I ask my mates at the hospital down the road what they're doing. The British standard gives me an absolute black and white. This is right. This is wrong. If your cupboard is compliant, it's great. Don't worry any further. If your cupboard is not compliant, it's not good enough. Please buy something else. So for me, and, and pharmacists love a bit of black and white. We love things to be crystal clear. So for me, it just gives that absolute certainty that in this particular sphere, Medicine's cupboards, I'm doing the right thing. I can be assured we're compliant. If our regulators come in, I can tell them we're compliant. So it just gives me that level of certainty which you don't often see in the NHS.
2: Now I want to come back to when you sort of first discovered this, your sort of standards journey with BS2881. Mm. But tell us about the cupboards. I'm really keen to you know, describe them to me. You know, what do they what do they look like and, and how many, how many are there in the hospital?
0: Um, so they look like a quite nice cupboard so they, they shouldn't really look too much different to your average kitchen cupboard not not particularly shiny you know not wood veneers and so on um, but they look like a straightforward cupboard but reasonably you know you, you, if you look at them from a distance I imagine you're going hey that's a high quality cupboard that that looks like it's been well made but beyond that it's a cupboard with a key lock and in your average ward or treatment room Uh, You might walk into that treatment room and have a bank of four or five cupboards at eye level. And then there's often a countertop, a workspace where you might be doing medicines preparation. And then beneath that counter, you might have a series of other cupboards down there. Sometimes you've got a few drawers with some medicines in and often you've got a drugs fridge. So you've got a bank of cupboards and the nurse in charge of the ward will have um, a bundle of keys in his or her pockets um, and an individual key for each one of those cupboards. And then there's professional guidance around having um, separate cupboards for what we call internal medicines, tablets and things like that, external medicines, creams and so on. And then you might separate out your inhalers in one place, your injections in another place. So some of that is just about managing your stock, being able to find the right thing easily, keeping things tidy. So so that bank of cupboards isn't just chaos. It isn't just a complete A to Z. It will be broken down depending on the needs of the ward and the staff working there.
2: So in terms of numbers then, you'll you'll have at least one of these in, in every ward in the hospital?
0: Oh, several per ward cupboards why. So you might have one controlled drugs cupboard. So that's um, a very specific cupboard with very specific requirements for drugs that are controlled in law. Things like morphine. Morphine's your classic control drug. Um, so those cupboards tend to have two separate locks and two separate keys. They're much, much stronger, much harder to break into. Uh, and then in terms of control drugs, there's lots of regulations about keeping a register, writing down every time you supply some to a patient, having a second person witness that supply and two signatures. So there's a lot of rules around that. And that control drugs cupboard, you tend to have one. Some of them have a little light at the top, which comes on when it's open, so that there's a, a visual signal that the cupboard is open or probably more accurately, a visual signal that it is not locked to kind of put that opposite spin on it. So one of those, but then other drug cupboards, probably half a dozen or so for an average ward, depending on the size of it, and then maybe in an intensive care unit where they've got a much uh, heavier drug usage, they might have more of those. Um increasingly at the moment we're moving into having automated dispensing cabinets rather than cupboards so you might if you walked into our intensive care unit what you'd see is what I call very sexy cupboards big floor to ceiling things with glass doors and biometric access so that's when things start to look look a little bit different and that's where I I probably am not completely sure how BS 2881 applies to these new (laughs) sexy cupboards
2: Well, I was going to ask about that, about about those sexy cupboards? I'm interested in those. I mean, in terms of the the, the guidance then, you said that the guidance for for who has access. I mean, is that Mm -hmm. something that the hospital develops or is this across the NHS broadly? There are protocols and procedures for who has access to which particular cupboard.
0: So there is guidance. There's not much in the way of legislation um, around things like who is allowed to have access, but there is good professional guidance. So the piece of guidance that we used to follow um, came out of something called the Duthie report, which was a big report into the safe and secure handling of medicines in hospitals. So we'll talk about Duthie compliance. We'll talk about Duthie standards and Duthie checks. That's all about medicine security. Um, A few years ago now, that that Duthie report was replaced by some joint guidance between my professional body, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, uh, and the Nursing and Midwifery Council, I may have to correct myself on that. It might be the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing. Can't remember without checking.
2: Clarifications Corner. I'll just jump in here quickly for you, Julia. It was the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing.
0: Some joint professional guidance was issued um, that was agreed by both that pharmacy and nursing body um, describing what good looks like in terms of safe and secure handling of medicines who can have access things like keeping the keys with a registered nurse at all times keeping the controlled drug key separate so there's a lot of good guidance around that uh, and again having that guidance means most hospital pharmacies will do the same thing but there'll be a little bit of, of localized tailoring to circumstances and conditions and the estate you're working with um but that. Like the standard, that gives us a great place to go to, something we can go through and tick off. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? But there are probably still some gaps in that in terms of I've still got unanswered questions about precisely what the right thing to do is around something like IV fluid storage, for example. So it's maybe not complete, but it's a lot better than it was uh, maybe 20 years ago.
1: Do you want to help make people's lives easier, safer and more enjoyable? Well... Why not become a standards maker and have your say on the development of standards? Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy and society to do things better. Each year, standards bodies publish thousands of standards, and we are looking for more people like you to join our community of standards makers. We welcome applicants from all fields, backgrounds and career stages. Our goal is to have a balance of views around the table. By becoming a standards maker, you could help to create cities that boost people's well-being, make strides in stem cell research, build more diverse workplaces, and even lift the pressures on healthcare systems. So, if you want to make a difference and shape the world through standards, start your standards making journey now. Simply visit bsigroup.com forward slash get involved.
2: Now, Julia, I want to come back to sort of how the the standard or the your your trust in this in the standard mm. helps you with with your job effectively mm. and what it's sort of the ultimate beneficiaries really of you using the standard or at least the standards being used in uh, to manufacture the cupboards that you're using. Mm. Um but I want to st- just ask you about your journey with b BS2- s mm. 2881 you know when did you first see it when did you first become aware of this particular standard?
0: So I, I probably first started caring about medicines management, medicines governance in that way, uh, in one of my previous roles as a hospital pharmacist in another organisation to the one I'm working in now, down down in the middle of Kent in Medway. Uh, and I took on a role um, in medicines governance. Ooh, we're probably talking around about 2007, 2008, thereabouts. Uh, and that's when you start to become the person responsible for making sure that we're doing those duffy checks, those audits on wards to see if they're looking after their medicines. Uh, And then maybe being asked to update the medicines policy, which is the key policy most hospitals will have for that describe how we look after our medicines. And when you start going into medicines policy, that's probably the point when you may first hear 2881 comes up. What is this British standard? What on earth does it mean? Do I have to do anything or do I just tell people you must be compliant? Are the cupboards we have in the building compliant now or have we had to risk assess on compliant ones? So. What are we talking? That's probably around about 15, 16 years ago, I feel like, it's probably where I first became aware of it. Um, not sure I've ever really seen the detail that sits behind it. Um, I, I just know it's there and I need it and I want it. I'm aware that it's to do with... Um, the cupboards being uh, immune or resistant to attack by somebody coming at it with a kitchen knife or something like that so i've never really got into the detail of it i've picked up snippets of it over time um but but yeah my my relationship with 2881 goes back quite some way
2: i to say it's been part of your professional journey it's been there in the background doing Absolutely. its thing in the background always doing you. its
0: <laughs> thing old faithful completely reliable never changing
2: now, you talk there about your background as a pharmacist and you're not obviously now in medicine management. Now, you're currently an associate director of clinical quality assurance and innovation. So I've got to ask on a day to day basis, what does that involve?
0: So my current role is probably two big chunks of work and I, I tend to um, dip my fingers into anything I like the sound of to some extent and see if I can help, see if I can interfere. But the two big chunks and they're kind of polar polar opposites, different ends of the spectrum. So clinical quality assurance, that part of my role relates to CQC regulation. So on our organizational lead, our point person on all of our business with the Care Quality Commission. So the CQC is the main regulator of health and social care in England. So they are the organization that will come in and, and physically inspect our hospitals to see if we're doing what we should do and see if we're doing it well. So they, they inspect against what they call five key questions. And that's as a healthcare provider, are we safe? Are we caring? Are we effective? Are we responsive? And are we well led? Those are their five key questions. They will come in and inspect. They'll look at policies and procedures. They'll talk to staff. They'll talk to patients. They'll do all of that uh, synthesis of the evidence they've gathered. And then they'll give us a rating to say in those five domains, how are you doing? And then they, they will judge us effectively. They apply a judgment to say, are we outstanding? That's the top rating. That's what we're aiming for. Are we good, which is where my organisation is at the moment? We're on a journey to get to outstanding. Do we require improvement? So requires improvement is kind of that third level down. Or are we inadequate? That's the bottom of the CQC scale. So they'll apply a rating. And depending on how things are going, if you're good or outstanding, things are probably going well. You may have some areas to improve in. Um, but not too much to worry about. If you require improvement or you're inadequate, then the CQC, uh, as the regulator, can impose conditions on our ability to function. They will impose must-do actions to say you must improve how you do this. And one of those could be you must improve medicines management. Um, medicines management is, is lumped under that are we safe category for the CQC, so everything we do with medicines, including keeping them locked in these cupboards, links to are we a safe organisation. And so so if the CQC judge us as inadequate, that that can be potentially really problematic. It means we're not delivering high quality care for our patients. But the ultimate actions could be that we are no longer allowed to provide the services we're registered to provide if, if we can't show those improvements. So that part of my job is all about managing our relationship with the CQC making sure we've got a framework in place to self-assess and try and stay on top of those key questions to welcome them in when they want to come and inspect and manage that inspection uh, and then to oversee any action plans we have to put into place following inspection to deliver those improvements and to get us to outstanding. So that's one half of the job. Very finger-waggy, inspection, regulation, all of that kind of stuff. The other side, the innovation bit, um, Kind of segued out of my connection with developing our electronic prescribing system. So when I was in pharmacy, um, I was one of the leads on developing electronic prescribing, EPMA. That's drifted into being the organisational SRO for the EPMA project. And then that drifted into a wider innovation role. Um, And now I'm the SRO for our whole electronic patient record project. So that's, in a nutshell, is trying to get rid of all the paper we use for making patients notes and make it digital. Um, So that the bulk of my innovation role at the moment is linked to digital transformation, that kind of stuff. Although it it could expand out into the fuller scope of innovation, research, cool, um, artificial intelligence things using AI in radiology to detect lung cancer, research studies, anything that you might put under the innovation umbrella in healthcare, in theory, I'm going to develop this role into um, someone who leads on that whole innovation portfolio. But for the time being it's it's mainly digital transformation getting us off paper jeremy hunt promised the nhs would be paper three by 2018 we're not quite there but getting getting us off paper so that we've got digital records you can't lose them great access to data once it's digital great you uh, an ability to do clinical informatics which we can't do very effectively from paper audits improving outcomes research all of that kind of stuff so It's safer, digitally driven care is safer, but it also gives us um, the power of really good data sitting behind that. So very exciting, loads to do.
2: It's, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating role, if I could, very, a broad simplification here. You're you, hmm. in charge of making sure people don't break into medicine cupboards and digital transformation of healthcare. That's a hell of a portfolio, isn't it?
0: It really is. And then, as I say, I dip my toe into all sorts of other bits and pieces. So um, I work with our continuous quality improvement team. And ideally, that is pulling in things like if, if the CQC say, you must improve medicines management then I'll help us to connect with the CQI team and say, well, how can we use improvement methodology? How can we use PDSA cycles to try and improve this element of medicines management? So I kind of act as a connector between that compliance regime to try and drag it out of the finger-waggy, stick-waving compliance element into more of a learning and improvement frame of mind. Mm -hmm. And I also – I continue to dip my toe into anything relating to medicines, medicine safety particularly. I've got a passion for safety science, human factors, and ergonomics, so I'll still – prick my ears up at any mention of a serious medication error and see how I can help and stick my nose in. I do a little bit of work around um, tobacco dependency treatment. So trying to get people off the old cigarettes. Uh, I try and work with our um, environmental sustainability team. And I try and stay closely engaged with our quality, diversity and inclusion agenda in the organisation. So for all of those little bits and pieces, i Try to be um, a representative clinical voice uh, in those fora. If if other clinicians who are uh, far more shop floor based than I am, if they're struggling to get away from the shop floor, I try to be the person putting a hand up and saying, How is this relevant clinically? What about patient safety Um, if those messages aren't coming through because the clinicians are on the ward seeing their patients?
2: Now, Jill, just interested, is is this a role, a sort of unique role to the trust? Because I'm going to ask you about the trust shortly, but is is it a unique role or are there lots of you in different hospitals around the UK?
0: Um, I suspect it's it's completely unique as I've described it, because it. It really has grown quite organically. It started off purely as a clinical lead for the CQI team. Um, I carried on doing the EPMA work at the time after I changed out of the pharmacy role into that role because that felt like the safest thing for the project. And then it sort of naturally grew towards that, that wider digital transformation piece. And then the CQC work came as a bolt on when a previous post holder who was doing a pure CQC compliance role left. I think the organisation know that I've got a bit of a passion for the governance side of things and and, and going out and and checking on what other people are doing, which is much easier to do than marking your own homework. So we bolted that on. So it really has grown and developed around what the organisation needs, what I know I personally can give, what I enjoy. So I don't think you'll find anything that looks quite like this elsewhere. You will find people doing those pieces and doing different overlaps, but you probably wouldn't find an exact replica anywhere. It doesn't necessarily make sense as a role on its own but it makes sense for me right now and it makes sense for our organization right now.
2: Now you mentioned medicine management Obviously, you've mentioned mm-hmm. med- medicine management throughout our conversation so mm-hmm. far. So I'm just about covid actually. You must Ooh. have had you must have had an interesting role during sort of the va- the vaccine rollout were you responsible for that within the hospital?
0: Absolutely I was so I was still working in pharmacy as the chief pharmacist at that point in time. Um yeah that that was an interesting time obviously one of the things I was worried about at that point was was sustainability of the core pharmacy service. So we were thinking about what would we do if if an enormous number of our staff were off sick with COVID? How would we continue to provide a service? How do we keep staff safe in the department? So we had lots of screens being put up and we had to break down our work within the dispensary to build screens around the place. It looked like the crystal maze. We had so many screens up. Um, We were having to think about how to continue to provide services to places like the intensive care unit and what we could do to make it easier for those guys to do their job working under immense pressure with huge amounts of PPE potentially having to deliver very rapid care to very sick people under circumstances they're not used to. So maybe having to intubate and ventilate multiple patients very, very fast. What could we do to make it easier for our anesthetists and intensivists to access those drugs really rapidly, safely, whilst taking into account infection control? So there were a lot of challenges for the pharmacy service generally during COVID. But yeah, the the vaccination stuff um, absolutely came in pharmacy's direction. Why wouldn't it? one of the really big challenges was the storage so the the first covid vaccine that came out the um Pfizer Bio- BioNTech vaccine was this one that was stored at ultra low temperatures yes this
2: was the fridge conversation wasn't it yeah. we all had it was all about what was it minus 28 or something well oh, to record So, so it-
0: most hospital pharmacies will have a freezer a normal freezer same kind of temperatures as a domestic freezer kind of that minus 15 zone keeps keeps water frozen mm this thing had to be stored at ultra low temperatures. So we were down into the kind of minus 75 territory. And I think some hospital pharmacies might've come across that kind of stuff if they were doing clinical trials. But for most of us, that was new. So we had to have a delivery of this enormous... Ultra low temperature freezer. We had to develop processes. We had to teach each other how we would get this vaccine safely in and out without harming ourselves. Great. We had to get a delivery of these big ultra low handling gauntlets and face masks and a big pinny. So that was all uh, kind of exciting, very new. And it all came delivered on dry ice as well. So we had to learn about handling dry ice and again, how not to harm ourselves with that. Not becoming asphyxiated by handling too much CO2 in a confined space. So that was very exciting, very challenging. Um, and then we had to set up a vaccination centre. So I became the clinical lead for our vaccination programme, but worked really closely with um, one of our directors, our director of planning transformation strategy, who was the planning expert, the arranging expert. Um, one of A nurse colleague who I've worked with for years, um, who was our simulation and human factors lead, came in to help us set up Process flows that worked sensibly from an HFE point of view. So, we very rapidly kicked our poor finance team out of their office, turned it into (laughs) a vaccination centre, got the fridges set up. uh, And then I still remember vividly, for some reason, our vaccination programme, I believe it started on the 27th of December. So, we got through Christmas and Boxing Day. And then on the 27th of December, we had this first delivery of the vaccine in its big polystyrene container on dry ice, delivered into the freezer. Uh, and I think I came in at six o'clock in the morning because we were getting ready to start doing our very first vac- staff vaccinations at 7.30 and we needed to brief our team. So, uh, and, and you may remember there were, there was lots of talk about just how fragile this vaccine was. And we'd had all sorts of briefings around how gentle you needed to be with it. And you, you couldn't handle it in any kind of rough way. And when you were drawing it up, you had to draw it up really carefully and, and, and not have any air bubbles in it. And it, we were so terrified of damaging this vaccine to the extent that it wasn't going to work we were walking around on tenterhooks all the time wrapping it in cotton wool so i i did the job of taking this box of vaccine this little square pizza box from that big pharmacy uh, freezer and putting it into the fridge to defrost it so it got to a usable temperature and then putting it onto this trolley and trundling it, the full length of the hospital building, so pharmacy is over at the west end Mm -hmm. of the building and our vaccination centre was at the far east end of our building, six o'clock in the morning, trundling it all the way down the corridor, as slow as possible and skipping a heartbeat every time it went over a lump in the floor. So, oh, God, have I handled it too roughly? All the way down to the other end of the building and then rolling it in, you know, practically down a red carpet into the vaccination centre and loading it into that that, that fridge in the vaccination centre, ready to start that first round of vaccinations. If you speak to my colleague Cynthia in comms, I think she's got the photos of me merrily wheeling that first batch of vaccination into that
2: centre. I can hear the emotion in your voice, actually, because I remember, it was a very strange time, wasn't it? If you remember the the, the the first lockdown, even the second lockdown, we're thinking, how long is this carrying on for before the vaccine had been developed? Just wonder, as a you know, you're a clinical practitioner, you've been involved, it's a long time, we had this, this new vaccine, we had, you know, global pandemic, what was the emotional feeling, thinking, wow, this wow, this this is this has come to solve the problem, how did that feel when you're taking it into the hospital, yeah. what was the emotional feeling? I,
0: ex- exactly, as I, I think you're kind of implying there, it, it, was, it was the light at the end of the tunnel, the vaccine, it, it was what was going to get us out of the situation we were in, um, people were desperate for it, so a lot of our consultants were obviously staying well on top of the research, knowing what was going on, knowing how a pandemic like this could go without a vaccine, um, knowing that they were not able to deliver the care to patients that we needed to, knowing that in some cases we couldn't save people. So, this vaccine was going to save our patients, save our staff. It, it really was the light at the end of the tunnel. So, yeah, it, absolutely an emotional journey, wheeling that in and knowing we'd be able to start the vaccination program, which. Somehow was going to fix everything, but we, the, the clinical trial—forgive me, clinical trial data—told us it was going to be effective on, on, you know, a pretty large sample size. If I recall correctly, those first trials were in around about forty thousand people. So that's a good mm. sample size, but still having that element of doubt—is—is is it going to do it? it? I suppose it's based more on hope uh, and and wishful thinking. This is going to fix it but still knowing will this be it how long will it take will we get to um, a level of herd immunity very quickly what if it has side effects that we're not expecting what if it has long-term mm-hmm. side effects that we're not expecting so a, a proper roller coaster of emotions but yeah that first day uh, and again we've got the picture somewhere of the first one of our doctors who had that first dose it was it was joyous that that first day it was it was pure joy we're getting the vaccine into people. Mm-hmm. You know, we can you can almost sense it starting to crack out those spike proteins into people. Immunity is growing. It it was it was celebratory. It was a happy place to be. People loved working there. Um, It wasn't. I mean, it, it was intense, but it felt like a calm, happy environment. You got five to 10 minutes with each member of staff, each patient to have a good conversation with them. To not, We weren't just whacking vaccine in and out of people on a production line. We, Our focus was to deliver as a true moment of proper care. Yeah. So and, it was an incredible I, place to be.
2: And I assume, Juliet, unlike anything else you've gone through in your career.
0: Yeah, and anything I hope to go through in the future. <laughs> um, it was a great time in many ways, but never again, please.
2: So, Julie, you are you are based at Darrent Valley Hospital in Dartford in Kent, which is in, in South East England, and it, that's part of the Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust. Now, we have listeners all over the world. So just tell us, give us a bit of context here. Tell us about Darrent Valley Hospital.
0: Our, our trust is what's called an acute trust. So it, it's a classic hospital. It, it's, you know, what you imagine when you see a hospital on the telly. The English NHS will will have uh, the other types are called specialist trusts. So that's things like specialist cancer hospitals where they only do cancer services. We have mental health trusts delivering inpatient and outpatient care to to patients with mental health needs. And we have community trusts doing community health services. So an acute trust is like a classic hospital. And that's what Darren Valley is, uh, which is the main hospital building in our organisation. Um, we're a small hospital for the most part. We've got around about 500 beds. That can vary on a sometimes a day-to-day basis, but it, it varies seasonally, um, especially when winter comes along and we, and, and we have increased patient needs. But around about 500 beds, that's relatively small for, for England. Um, and we deliver those classic hospital services, again, the kind of things you might expect to see on a, a TV sitcom about hospital. We have an emergency department or what we used to call an AE. and Um, We have general medicine doing specialties like diabetes and cardiology. Um, We have surgery, obviously. So we have operating theatres where we do both planned surgery, your knee replacements, your hip replacements uh, and emergency surgery, say for people who've been involved in accidents. Uh, We have a maternity service uh, and other women's services like gynaecology. Uh, And we do paediatrics, children and young people services, including um, a neonatal ward. So that's kind of our core business. Some of it's inpatient, some of it's outpatient. Uh, And then as with any similar hospital, you've got those frontline, those wards, those departments, those outpatient clinics. All of that, that frontline work is supported by things like a pharmacy department, a pathology lab, an imaging department doing your x-rays and your CTs and your MRIs. And all of the other support functions like the clinical coding team and the medical records team, our estates and facilities team, our cleaners, our porters, all of those functions that maybe people don't think about all the time operating in the background. So that that our organisation looks much the same as any district and general hospital that you might walk into um, in England today.
2: So I want to come back then to the standard, Julia BS two double eight all about these, these medicine, these medicine cupboards. I just wonder, you know, thinking about this at a sort of worst case scenario here, who are the ultimate beneficiaries of having a cupboard manufactured to this standard? Do you know, who's it? Who's it helping here?
0: So the the main beneficiary is probably the organisation in in terms of um, a corporate risk. We're probably the main beneficiary because the main problem would be if the regulator came in and said, your cupboards are not up to scratch, you are not keeping medicine safely, and therefore we're going to take some form of action. So realistically, it's probably, you know, the chief executive as as the person responsible for, for the overall running of the building, they're probably the ultimate beneficiary, because it's, it's, a, it's a rules thing, isn't it? It's making sure we meet regulatory standards, and there's no means by which we can be criticised. Operationally, in, in the real world, the reason we want the medicines cupboards to be secure and the reason we like to have that standard is because that reduces um, the risk of error or drug diversion uh, or those kind of clinical safety problems so the true beneficiary should be our patients because keeping medicines safe means we're keeping patients safe and to some extent staff so as professionally registered people Um, If I know that as a registered nurse, the medicines on my ward are secure. If something goes wrong, that doesn't put my professional registration at risk because we did all of the right things. So realistically, I think it's a corporate benefit. But on the ground, it has benefits for patients, it has benefits for staff. Um, it's uh, It's a standard that meets everybody's needs.
2: So obviously I can see from a, obviously from a, from a corporate level and obviously from a professional practitioner's level and and a patient safety level, this, this, the standard here is providing sort of trust and confidence at all all those levels that you're doing the right thing, but also meeting the needs of regulation and and the law. I just wonder, you know, how, you know, in terms of, you know, what about if somebody came at it with a, with a sledgehammer or or anything, or even, you know, even worse, to try and really get in, how confident are you that it will actually resist those attacks?
0: So that's interesting. Um, Something I didn't realise until fairly recently was that the standard actually contains different levels of security. Um, and, and those are based on – they're probably based on the environmental security. Where are you putting that cupboard? So for most hospital buildings, wards are man 24-7. The security is pretty high anyway. If somebody's walking down the ward with a sledgehammer, action's being taken fairly quickly before they get to that drug cupboard. So in, in my environment where we use this standard – the likelihood of attack on a drugs cupboard is, is really pretty low i think where the standard could potentially come into its own is where you've got drugs cupboards in a an environment that's inherently less secure so a community clinic that isn't manned 24/7 uh, maybe in an area with a high level of crime or where we you know there might be drug seeking behaviour so i I don't expect to ever see anybody attacking any of our drugs cupboards with a kitchen knife or a lighter or a blowtorch or any of these things that the standard lists. But in a different setting, in a different healthcare setting where the medicines management needs are higher, where the security needs are higher. That's where you you might really want that confidence that somebody won't be able to open your cupboard by attacking it with a blowtorch for at least 10 minutes. And then hopefully somebody else has taken some (laughs) other action uh, and called 999 and called the police.
2: But as you said earlier, I suppose it's the combination of understanding what the trust that comes from knowing the the cupboard has been manufactured to a specification that could resist a screwdriver or a sledgehammer or a blowtorch. But also you you lay on top of that, those behavioural guidance, professional practice to make sure that only the right people have the right keys at the right time to get access to the medicine.
0: Absolutely. So for something that's important, you you never want to rely on just one safety feature, do you? You you want layers of safety, you want redundancy built into your system. So ideally, even if I I were to leave the drug cupboard completely unlocked, it should be behind another closed door which has a digi-lock on it. And then even if I leave that door unlocked... Um, you probably need a swipe card to get into the ward. And then you should have probably passed a security presence before you got into the hospital. So this standard is one of several layers. Uh, For for anybody who's into the the safety science side of things, um, the old James Reason Swiss cheese model, which describes how errors happen with one thing getting through a hole in the Swiss cheese at a time, medicine security is no different. We're building in multiple layers of cheese so that where there's one hole in one safety mechanism, the next layer of cheese tries to block up that hole and pre- prevent an error getting through, or in this case, prevent somebody with a blowtorch, apparently, getting all the way through to the wall.
2: So you've talked there, Julia, about BS uh, 2881, about the, about its importance for you, You know, why it's your My Favourite Standard. And I assume there are lots of people like you around the UK who are maybe thinking about the standard in exactly the same way.
0: Absolutely. So anybody else who is currently a hospital chief pharmacist or has been in that kind of role or anybody similar to that role working in medicines governance, I expect all of them to be able to reel off 2881. It may come with a groan. It may come with, you know, it might be their favourite standard as well. I wouldn't be surprised if, like me, it's the only British standard they know. Give or take a couple of standards that relate to locks on cupboards, which I've started to get to know a little bit more uh, intimately recently. But, yeah, absolutely. Anybody else doing this same kind of role, I expect them to... um, a smile with familiarity if you mention 2881. They will know what it means and they'll have that same level of assurance of, yes, my cupboards meet 2881. That makes me happy.
2: Juliet, thank you so much for talking to us on The Standard Show and telling us all about your My Favourite Standard BS 2881.
0: My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me.
2: Now, if you want to know more about the standard BS 2881 specification for cupboards for the storage of medicines in healthcare premises, then check out the link in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed listening to Julia and you've been inspired to tell your story about your own My Favourite Standard, then get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can do that via email, social media, or even by sending us a voice message. Again, all of the details of how to do so are in the show notes.
1: You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to The Standard Show now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You just heard a Stripped Media Production.